Would you join me in prayer this morning? Lord, amazing grace has surely been shown to each and every one of us who has come to know you as our Lord and Savior. I praise you and thank you this morning for your grace that you've showered on us, that we will be able to worship you forever. Today, as we come to your word and as we think about how we can worship you best even right now, at this moment, in this place, Lord, allow your word to change our hearts, allow your word to transform us, to bring us closer to being more and more and more like you each and every day. Lord, I pray that you would guide us this morning. Give us wisdom as we come to your word. Give us understanding. And Lord, allow us to live our lives in a way that would honor you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, first of all, I want to start off by uh, saying to everyone, especially the women amongst us, Happy Mother's Day. Um, It is great to be here on a day we get to worship Christ together and also just think about how much moms have meant to us and mean to us. Now, today's sermon is not going to be a a Mother's Day sermon by any means, Um, we are going to continue in Mark. Uh, I just want everybody to know that that does not mean that I, have no, I don't respect mothers. That is not the, key, the case at all. But as we continue to go through Mark, uh, I feel we need to continue going. Uh, there's been enough other times that we've had to take breaks. And so as we continue to go through the book of Mark, we're going to continue to look at who Jesus was, who Jesus is, what it means for us to live the Christ-like life, and we're going to continue that process today. But in light of Mother's Day, I was thinking about an illustration for this morning, and uh, we are going to talk a lot about, and last week we talked, or was it last week, or last time, two weeks ago, whenever I preached last, we we were in Mark, and we were talking about authority. We were talking about the authority that Jesus had, and in a minute we'll review some of that, and uh, with authority... And I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but with authority, there almost always comes opposition. Uh, With authority, there almost always comes a battle with others who feel like they should be in authority. And uh, I know I'm not a mother, but I am a parent, and I've kind of watched, and I will say that a mother has authority over her children, and yet I would say that I think a lot of times that does not come easy. It's not like the kids just say, okay, since you're my mom, I'm never going to say no and I'm going to obey every single thing you say. If you have kids like that, uh, that's great. I will borrow them and give you mine. All right, so uh, we can make a trade. Um, But I I believe it's true as parents and as mothers that uh, there's authority there and yet so many kids, what do they do? Well, they want to have authority over their own lives. Kids think they're independent. They want to be independent. If you're a kid that's sitting here today, I'm not trying to be negative towards you. You've got a lot of things to learn, and we understand that. And it's important that kids uh, respect and honor their parents and their mothers, and we know that. And yet, if we think about the authority that a mom has in the life of her kids, and it does not go without opposition. Uh, each week, I would say that in our household, there's a couple times that, that the kids will think that somehow they're 
independence is more important than what their mother is saying to them. And there is a, there's a, a little bit of a battle and it's a constant thing. It's, it's a constant thing and I know eventually kids grow up and I know eventually they learn and hopefully, uh, not anybody's perfect, but hopefully respect and honor and obedience will continue to grow. But what we understand is that with any type of authority, it's going to have some opposition, especially with those who want to have authority themselves. And I think parenting is a great way to see that because kids want to exert themselves. Kids want to be, in a way, independent, and yet God has given them parents for a reason. And mothers have, are, are just a wonderful gift that God has given to kids so that they can guide them and direct them. And I would, imp- I would implore you children, if you're here today, listen to your mother, listen to your father, obey, listen. They're trying to help not trying to harm. With the idea of authority then, today we're going to look at Jesus. And we know that Jesus, last time we were together, we talked about that Jesus is the ultimate authority over all. And as such, today we will see that just as any authority will face opposition, even a parent, so Jesus faced opposition in his life. And so let's start with a little bit of review. Last time we were together, and the last few times we've been together, we've seen in the book of Mark that Jesus is identified as the suffering servant king. The suffering servant king. We see that to be true throughout the book of Mark. We did a little bit of an overview the first week we were together. And that is Mark's goal as he tells things from Peter's perspective. Peter is trying to get people to understand that, yes, Jesus is king, but even beyond that, he is the suffering servant king an oxymoron that doesn't make sense to many in the world a servant and a king how can you be both and yet jesus was and is on top of this in the book of mark we see that jesus is shown to be truly god and truly man at the same time now before i've said this phrase is fully man and fully god although that is true in a real sense uh, it's hard to be fully two separate things and i heard this phrase before it's not so much fully as it is truly Every part about Jesus is man and every part about Jesus is God. And we don't understand that because we're human and we, don't, we can't have two natures at once. And yet Jesus did and still does. And so as we see then that Jesus is truly God, truly man, as the suffering servant king, the last time we were together we did see that Jesus had authority over all things. As the God-man, the servant king, he has authority over all And we looked so far in the book of Mark in chapter 1 and starting in chapter 2 and we saw that Jesus taught with authority like none others could teach because the other teachers could only teach what they had been taught but Jesus could teach with authority because he himself is the word of God speaking the word of God. And so he taught with authority. Then we saw that he healed with authority. That he had authority not only over physical healing, but also healing in the spiritual world. He was casting out demons. He was healing diseases. And as such, we see that he had authority over the physical world and the spiritual world. And finally, we saw in the first part of chapter 2 of Mark that Jesus forgave with authority. That his ultimate authority was not just about healing. His ultimate authority was not just about casting out demons His ultimate authority wasn't even about what he taught. His ultimate authority is that he is God himself that has the power and authority to forgive sins. And thank God for that because if he didn't have that authority, then none of us would have any hope. And Jesus 
can forgive. And Jesus does forgive with authority. So now as we continue in Mark, as we have that background, as we have that review, as we've gone through that, we are going to see that not everyone is going to respond to Jesus' authority as they should. Not everyone will be on board with Jesus as the king. See, many would not only, would not, only not recognize Jesus as king. A lot of people not only would not understand who, that he was king, but some would understand that he was king or that he's claiming to be king. They would understand that and yet would oppose his authority. And as we go through this, we'll see some of the reasons why that might be the case. All right, so Jesus' authority led to opposition throughout his ministry. There's no question about this. If you look through the book of Mark, look through any of the Gospels, you will see that Jesus' ministry, while on the earth, was filled with opposition. Yes, there was followers. Yes, there were people who believed in him. Yes, he had disciples. Yes, he had people who would listen. But more times than not, a lot of people in the crowds that he was speaking to would also oppose his authority. They would oppose him. That was part of the... That's part of his suffering, really, as he's the suffering servant king. Part of that suffering came as his own people would reject him and would oppose him as he's on the earth. In Mark 2, 13, through chapter 3, verse 6, where we'll be this morning, we will see that the earthly authorities are opposing Jesus. Well, there'll be so many op- opponents to Jesus, we start by looking at the, the authorities that are around him. And I guess I might be getting ahead of myself, but it's pretty clear to see why earthly authorities would be opposing Jesus' godly, kingly authority. And that is for one main reason, because if he had authority over all, and they have authority over a little, that means that their authority was going to be thrown out. That no longer would they be the ones that people would listen to. No longer would they be the ones that have all the power and authority. But Jesus would be the one and they couldn't have that because they came to love their authority and their power and their greed and all of those things. And so earthly authorities, they see, they want to fight against Jesus' authority because they feel like they should have their own say. And so they fight against him and we see that here, especially in Mark 2, 13 through 3, 6. So let's take some time. And remember that this is on the heels of chapter 2 when we just saw Jesus, after a man had been lowered through the roof, not only heal the man of his his paralyzation, but also say that he forgave his sins. And so the Pharisees and the leaders of the day now saw Jesus say that and what their claim is is that he is blasphemous. So on on, on the, the heels of that, this is where we find ourselves In chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, 
Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will then fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth into an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the old from the new, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins." One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields and, they made, and, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need or was hungry? And he, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate at the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, but not, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. So we see the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, it's been going pretty well up to this point. He's been healing people. He's been forgiving people. He's been casting out demons and he's got a crowd that is following him wherever he goes even to the point of the four men having to dig a hole in the roof to get their friend to him so we see that Jesus' ministry is is booming really it's it's what every preacher or whatever what every political figure what every person would want to have this crowd following him wherever they go and in the midst of this now we see he almost not only is going to receive opposition but he almost seeks it out And this is what we start seeing through this passage in chapter 2, starting in verse 13. So here in this passage, we see three oppositions from the religious and political authorities as they try to find anything to discredit Jesus' authority. The first is an opposition to who he fellowships with. His first opposition is fellowship with sinners. The first opposition that is brought by his opponents is that he has fellowship with sinners. Sinners, this was not something that you did. You stuck with the people who were clean. You stuck with the people who were <clears throat> religious. We see this starting here in, in verse 13, and we're going to go, we're looking at this passage all the way until 17. So let's just break this down a little bit. We first of all see Jesus calls Levi. If you don't know who Levi is, you were told in other accounts that this is Matthew. Jesus most likely changed his name as he did with Peter from Simon to Peter. And we see that Matthew literally means gift of God. So this is Levi or Matthew, the same Matthew that wrote our first gospel that would come even before the book of Mark. So this is the Matthew, the Levi that is being talked about. And Jesus calls Levi the tax collector to follow him. Levi the tax collector. Now many of you have heard about tax collectors uh, now, we have tax collectors today, and there's not too many people that even like them today. Uh, that is true. 
But even back in those days, the tax collectors were even more hated than anybody in the IRS today. And by the way, if you work for the IRS, I love you. Um, and, uh, but tax collectors were really, for lack of a better way of saying it, they were just scum to people. And this is why. Because a lot of them were Jewish, <clears throat> and so therefore were collecting money for Rome so they're in league with Herod, who is Rome's puppet king. They're in league with Rome. They're collecting money to give to Rome. And so Jews hated tax collectors. They, it was kind of like being a traitor. You're, you're being a traitor to your people because you're collecting tax for this government, for this, this empire that is oppressing the Jewish people. And so that was right off the bat why people would have hated uh, any tax collector, including Levi, including Matthew here. Uh, they were in league with Herod in Rome, and they were most likely, uh, then we find Matthew, he was most likely educated uh, as a tax collector. He'd have to know math, and he'd have to know how to keep books, those type of things. And he was Jewish. And those things uh, are interesting. As he's sitting there t- collecting taxes, everyone would have hated him. And by the way, the other thing that tax collectors were known to be doing, and we don't know for sure that Levi was doing this, but he definitely could have been, is that they would charge extra for tax. Because that was kind of the way that they could make money. So if you owed 10% to Rome, Matthew would come and say, you owe me 13%. And that extra 3% would go right to his pocket. Many tax collectors were doing this. Actually, as we move on, we see that apparently by the fact that he had a a house, that he had a party, there's a good chance he's quite well-to-do. So there's a good chance that he may even be skimming off the top. We don't know that for sure. But with all this being said, this is the least likely person that a religious Messiah would come, uh, the Messiah that is going to free the Jews from Roman oppression, right? That's what everybody's looking at the Messiah as. Why would he call a tax collector to follow him? This makes no sense. It wouldn't happen. And so people are confused, especially the authorities, And by the way, as a point of interest here, I found this this week. I didn't realize this. I didn't think about it. But it says is that this happened as they were going by the sea. The most likely this tax booth that Matthew was in was right by the Sea of Galilee, which means he was probably taking taxes on the fishermen. Which, if you think about, the first disciples, the first followers that we've already been told of specifically, what was their occupation? They were fishermen. Uh, Jesus is not only calling somebody that the Jews would have hated, but now he's calling someone to follow him that his own disciples would have hated. That's an interesting concept there, as we see that Jesus is reaching out to all sorts, and not only reaching out to all sorts of people, but even people who would be against one another. And that's the beauty of unity that Jesus can bring, but that's for another sermon another time. We also see of Matthew, by the way, if you go to the parallel passage in Luke chapter 5, We're told that Matthew, when Jesus calls him to follow him, Matthew gets up and leaves everything to follow Jesus. That's what Luke says. He left his tax booth. He left his profession. This could could have got him in a lot of trouble with not only uh, Rome, but also just the fact that he wouldn't be making money anymore. But he left all to follow Jesus. He knew there was something about Jesus, that his authority was worth following. And he gave up everything to follow him. And so we see then that this happens and this is the start now of Jesus going against the religious establishment. He calls somebody that everyone would have hated. There would have been no Jews, 
And even probably those who are following him would have any love for Matthew. And yet he calls Matthew to follow him. And as Matthew does that, then Jesus goes to his house. Which brings us to our next point. Jesus has dinner with sinners. So he meets Matthew, meets, meets Levi and says, hey, uh, follow me. Uh, Levi does that. And then apparently in following Jesus, Levi leads him to his house where there is a feast that is taking place. And at this feast, we find many tax collectors and sinners who are reclining and they're eating and they're fellowshipping, they're partying. And Jesus is there reclining with them. A rabbi, remember that he's looked at as a rabbi and and his people are looking at this, he goes into the house of a tax collector after asking him to follow him and he goes into his house, not only goes into his house, but reclines with him at his table with all of his dirty friends. That is exactly what Jesus does. We see reclined at the table. This is a phrase that means clearly acceptance and familiarity. That he is accepting these people, he is loving these people, he is caring for these people, and he is not afraid to be seen with them. Obviously, from what we can tell, is that the scribes, they see this happening, so this is a public thing. This isn't like he's going into this house and hiding away. Everyone knows what he's doing. He's eating with these sinners and tax collectors. Tax collectors and sinners, you've got to understand, this is referring to not only political, but also religious dissenters. Tax collectors are the ones that politically that everyone would have hated. Not only politically, but also, as I said, they probably were stealing, so there would have been some, some hatred towards them that way as well. So the tax collectors would be political problems for the religious leaders and even the political leaders of the Pharisees. But then sinners are those who don't follow Pharisaical law. Those who will just go and they're not following the law the way the Pharisees feel they should follow the law and therefore they are considered sinners. So you got the worst of the worst. And just so we, don't, just so we make sure, they see both groups, not necessarily as separate, but there is a difference with the political dissenters and the religious dissenters and they're all coming together and all of a sudden now those who are in authority are getting concerned. Why would this rabbi, why would Jesus fellowship with sinners jesus has dinner with them this shows acceptance familiarity and then in this opposition this is where it comes jesus does this he calls levi he goes to levi's house he publicly eats with them he knows that this is coming and here's the opposition the scribes of the pharisees come after they see what's going on and they say why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners This is not something that was normal. The Pharisees would have never done this. Religious leaders would have never done this. These were the people you not only don't fellowship with, but these are the people that you shun and stay away from. And yet Jesus wanted to show that he indeed came for sinners. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus' mission was to save sinners, not the self-righteous And that's what Jesus says in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus makes it clear to those who are questioning and opposing his authority that his authority is not an authority that is going to be separate from the people, but it's an authority that he can bring to save people. His mission was to save and heal people people he even compares himself here to a physician he compares himself to a physician and this only makes sense a physician's job is to heal people who are sick 
But I want to say a few things about this. As we think about a physician, I think Jesus, in the same way, there's a lot of parallels here. A physician cannot heal somebody's sickness unless a couple things happen. First of all, the person has to show up. The person has to come to the doctor's office. The person has to understand that they have a problem. If the person doesn't understand that they're sick and don't go to, never goes to the doctor, then the doctor can't heal that person. The doctor can't give them the medicine that they need. The doctor can't do anything if they don't come to the doctor knowing that they need help. And then obviously, the doctor can only help those who are truly sick. But here's the truth of the second point, is all of us are truly sick. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Pharisees, religious leaders, tax collectors, other sinners... It doesn't matter who they are. Everyone has sinned. And that is a truth throughout Scripture. Each and every one of us who is sitting here has sinned. So that leads us to that first point. The Pharisees were not willing or didn't see themselves as sinners. That's obvious by their judgment here. The Pharisees thought that they were good. They were clean. They were righteous. They were healthy. And therefore, why would they need to go to Jesus? And Jesus is very simply saying, look, I came for those who know they're sick. I came for those who are sick so I can heal them. That's why I'm here. I'm not here to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, I'm not here to try to convince you that you have sinned. I am here to forgive sin. He came to save sinners, not the self-righteous. That much is true. So as we think about this section of fellowship with sinners and we think about what it means to live a Christ-like life, I want to ask you this question. In your life, are you willing to sacrifice comfort and even maybe face opposition in order to reach out to those who are sinners, tax collectors, those who we don't agree with, those who don't agree with us, those who are in the midst of sin, those who are struggling those who don't understand who Jesus is, are we willing, as Jesus was, to fellowship with them? Because if it is Jesus' mission to save sinners, and he left this earth and gave us the responsibility to carry on his mission, then what should we be doing? We should be reaching out even to the sinners. Here's a quote that I found as I studied this week from Kent Hughes. Kent Hughes gives this quote, and it was kind of convicting even to me. Perhaps none of us espouse such pharisaical beliefs that you shouldn't fellowship with sinners. In fact, we loathe them, but many of us live them out nonetheless. We come to Christ, and in our desire to be godly, we seek out people like us. Ultimately, we arrange our lives so that we are with non-believers as little as possible. We attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian, a Sunday school that is 100% Christian, prayer meetings that are 100% Christian. We play tennis with Christians and eat dinner with Christians. We have Christian doctors, Christian dentists, Christian plumbers, Christian veterinarians, and even our dogs are Christian. The result is we pass by hundreds without even noticing them or positively influencing them for Christ. None of us are Pharisees philosophically, but we may be practically. Some of us will be convicted by that. Have we lived our lives with blinders? Tunnel vision. And don't get me wrong, it is vitally important to be with your fellow believers. 
I'm not saying that you need to say, all right, no more church on Sunday mornings, I'm going to start going to the bars. That's not what I'm saying. We need to be together. That is vitally important to our Christian faith. But let's not ignore those on the outside who still need Jesus. Let's not get so caught up in our bubble that we forget that those are outside that need Jesus desperately. Jesus went to those people, will we do the same thing? But moving on in Mark, we see that not only was Jesus fellowshipping with the wrong people, according to the Pharisees, but the Pharisees then also accused him of not being religious enough and that he was eating a feast when he should have been fasting. That's what we find in this next section John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples uh, and, the, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus is not religious enough for authorities, for the people. You see, Jesus was feasting instead of fasting. Jesus was feasting instead of fasting. His disciples were feasting instead of fasting. So before we understand why this question is even asked, we need to talk about the fasting of the Pharisees and John's disciples. The fasting of the Pharisees and John's disciples, what was the point? Why were they fasting? Well, you'll find in Jewish law that the only time that it's really required to fast is before the Day of Atonement. However, the Pharisees have decided they're going to add two days a week you need to fast. This is a man-made thing. It's, uh, It's, hey, you need to fast. And what was the point of fasting? Fasting was a religious act to get closer to God and to prepare yourself for the repentance of sin. Really, it was an act in order to please God, to say, look, I am going to be repentant and I'm going to fast. I'm going to give up everything for, for God. I'm going to show him how much I care. I'm going to show him that I'm getting ready for repentance. Many times this was accom- accompanied by public humility and mourning. Like, not only would you fast, but you'd make it publicly known that you're fasting, and you would, you would you know, like, you know, put on the sackcloth and ashes type of idea, and you would show that you're mourning over your sin, and you're mourning over the fact that this world is not the way it should be, and you're mourning and waiting for the Messiah. And that is the point. That's why the religious Jews would be doing it at that time. It was this mourning ritual. Uh, it was sorrowful. It was repentance, and it was preparing and pleasing God through abstinence of food. And that's what was happening. That's what that's what was normal. That was the tradition. And Jesus comes in and then he's, him and his disciples, remember what's happening. Apparently this is one of those days you're supposed to be fasting because him and his disciples, they're in the house with Levi and his friends and they're having a feast. Not only is he not fasting, not only are they not fasting, they're doing the exact opposite. They're feasting. And Jesus' answer tells us this one truth, that Jesus brings joy, not sorrow. What he says to them is he responds to why his followers are not fasting. He says, look, I am present. Jesus is there. I am here. So there's no need for mourning and fasting. He refers to himself as a bridegroom. Many of us understand the bridegroom idea uh, that we are the bride of Christ. And for sure, this is this is definitely connecting to that, that Jesus is in relationship to us, loves us and cares for us and protects us and takes us as his own. We are the bride of Christ and that is all true. But there's also more to this because he talks about not only is he the bridegroom, but then he talks about uh, that uh, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. He, he's talking about a wedding. 
in Jewish days when they had weddings, it was a week-long celebration. It wasn't just a couple hours and then uh, you have a reception and then you go to your honeymoon. No, this was a week-long celebration, not only for the bride and groom, but also for all their guests, for their family. It was a big party. lasted all week long. Things, it was the place to be. That's where you wanted to be. That's what a wedding was. And it was a time of joy, celebration, just wonder that you could spend time with the bride and his groom, or her groom, and you could have this time of celebration. And actually, tradition tells us that during wedding feasts, during this week-long time, that many of the laws that you would normally have to obey, such as fasting and those type of things, were actually suspended during the week of of the wedding because weddings were so important in the Jewish culture that even some of the ceremonial things that would have caused you to mourn and would have caused you to have to uh, not be joyful, instead you would be able to postpone those throughout that week. That's what the wedding was looked at and Jesus is referring to this and what he's saying is, look, it's the week of the wedding. It's time for joy, not fasting. It's time for joy, not sorrow. We can be feasting because I'm here Then he says, when I go, when I'm taking away, then fasting will happen for my followers. So he foretells his death, that his death is coming. But I think the truth that Jesus is really getting at here is that Jesus is bringing joy, not sorrow. That following Jesus is joyful and his followers have him with them. The fulfillment of prophecy, they don't have to fast and repent. And, and have remorse and have mourning and, and be all publicly trying to shame themselves or to be hu- publicly humili- humiliated. What they need is Jesus and he's there so they don't need to do these things. Religion isn't the way Jesus is. And then in this passage, Jesus talks about this Uh, patch on clothing and then he talks about new wine and old wineskins the whole point of this is that the old ways the ceremonial laws are gone now and can't just be mixed with jesus's teaching instead jesus brings a completely new way of living jesus is saying look now that i'm here you don't have to obey all these ritual laws of of mourning and uh, and uh, fasting and those things. Now, those things can be done, but this is not what it's about. You don't have to mix me with the old ways, the ceremonial laws. I'm here. I've fulfilled everything, and so now you can look to me in faith. And he says this, that the new wine needs new wineskins. Like, everything is changing. You can't just take some of what he's teaching and just put it into the old way of thinking. Just like an, uh, an, a new patch on old pants or just like uh, uh, old, new wine in an old wineskin, it's not going to work. So you need to put everything in Jesus, not just put some of him back into the old way of living. And so in all this, he's preaching a, a, an idea that all things are new and therefore the religious ceremony of the past is not the way to live any longer, but he brings a new way of living. So we see his second opposition is that he was feasting and not fasting. In other words, he wasn't religious enough. So far, he, it's been that he fellowshiped with people he shouldn't, and now he's doing things he shouldn't. Uh, it continues then. Jesus' lack of fasting was just the tip of the iceberg when it came to the opposition he would face regarding his disregard of the Pharisees' ceremonial laws. Next, we will see that Jesus faces opposition based on his disregard for the Sabbath rules. So opposition number three. told Ed earlier this morning, I found a new word. 
He probably already knows it. Uh, but in an attempt to remain alliteration here, we have fellowship feasting, and now we have flouting the Sabbath. Flouting. I learned a new word this year, this, this week, all right? Well, it's probably for the year too, but... Um, Flouting the Sabbath. Flouting is, this is I, and I, this is why I had to use this word. It wasn't just to keep the alliteration, although that was kind of a, a clever way to be able to do it. But, not that I'm clever, never mind. Anyway, um, but it means to openly disregard a rule or law. To openly disregard. And that's the point there. To openly disregard a rule or a law. And we find that that's what Jesus is doing with the Sabbath. Here, as we continue reading, we see after the fasting and feasting issue, then Jesus and his disciples are going through the fields and they're grabbing grain for themselves to eat. And the Pharisees say, look, why are you picking grain on the Sabbath? You are breaking the Sabbath law. Once again, Jesus is doing this publicly. It's not like he said, hey, disciples, come around this way. We'll go to this field that nobody can see us and we'll grab some food. No, Jesus, as they're going, is grabbing Grain and, and the disciples are eating, and the Pharisees don't like this. By the way, nowhere in Scripture are we told that just simply plucking grain to eat is against the Sabbath laws. That is something that has been added by the Pharisees. Said, okay, God said to rest, so we're going to say you can't even pick any grain. Now, there was laws against harvesting grain, but not just picking it for your own consumption. And so, Jesus isn't even directly really disobeying the sabbath but he's being very open and he's disobeying their view of the sabbath see jesus allows his followers to pick grain and eat on the sabbath and then as the opposition comes and they say why are you doing this on the sabbath you're breaking the sabbath jesus then talks about what happens in the days of david uh, that he shows the old testament to show the superiority of the need of a king over the ceremony of the law. What we read, I believe this is back in 1 Samuel. I didn't write this down. It was 1 or 2 Samuel. I believe it was 1 Samuel. But what happens back then is David and his group of men is coming through and he needs sustenance. They have no other food and they, they eat bread that was meant to be used in the temple by the priests. That is ceremonial, not okay. You shouldn't do that. That's, that's breaking the law. God would punish people for doing that, and yet David, as the appointed king with his men, comes to the priest, he asks for the bread, he eats the bread, and he was not condemned for eating the bread. Because God understood, and Jesus is now bringing this out again here, that Jesus understands that the need of a king is more important than the ceremony of law. And that is exactly what he brings out here. He's pointing out to the Pharisees that there are reasons that Sabbath isn't just about um, you have to not do any work. There's a point to it. And that's why then Jesus goes on as he's talking about the Sabbath. He talks to them and says he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. We're going to get back to that. But before we do that, I want to look at the next section in chapter 3. Because I believe these couple verses here, 27 and 28, are kind of right smack in between these two passages about the Sabbath. So if we move on to chapter 3, we'll see that not only did Jesus allow his followers to pick grain on the Sabbath, but he heals a man on the Sabbath. In chapter 3, he enters the synagogue and there's a man with a withered hand. And people are watching Jesus, is what we're told here, to see what he's going to do. It's like he's been set up. 
Like, okay, there's this guy. He's got a withered hand. Let's put him in the temple. Let's put him in the synagogue. Let's put him here ready to ask to be healed on the Sabbath and see what Jesus does. That's what the authorities are trying to do. They're trying to trap Jesus. And so the man is there, and they're looking to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And he says, come here. And then he says, "If is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Jesus, first of all, is very public about what's happening. He's calling attention to what's going on. And he brings up this question. What is greater, loving and doing good or following ceremonies? Think about the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? Love God, love others. And Jesus right here is saying, look, what's more important to do good and to bring life? to love and to care for others? Are people more important or is ceremony more important? And they don't say anything because, I think probably because they know he's right and yet they won't say anything. And he's angry. He looks around. Their hardness of heart. They don't get it. They don't get it that it's not about obeying rules but it's about loving people. They don't get it. And their hardness of heart makes him angry. He looks around. He has him stretch out his hand and he is healed. And then the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Interesting thing we see here. uh, It is on the Sabbath that he does this. He brings up this idea that the Sabbath, sure, it's a ceremonial law. It's something that you feel like you have to obey. And they've added all these layers to it. But he says people are more important. Doing good is what is more important. But notice that he doesn't do any work to heal the withered man's hand. He says to him, stretch out your hand. The guy stretches out his hand, it's healed. We don't read that he did anything weird to make it happen. He didn't even touch the man according, I mean, we don't see that happen in the passage. He reaches out his hand and he's healed. And yet, because healing was done, the Pharisees see it as work. They see that he broke the Sabbath because he's not resting. And they immediately held counsel with the Herodians. Now, you read this and you think, okay, so they held counsel, they wanted to kill him, no big deal. Do you realize who's getting together here? The Pharisees, who are staunch Jewish people, love Israel, want Rome to be overthrown, all of these things, they are religious in every way. They are in league now with the Herodians, those who are following Herod, the hated king, who is a puppet king for Rome. Enemies are coming together to oppose Jesus. You know, you know the phrase... uh, What is it? The enemy of my enemies is my friend or something like that. And that's exactly what's happening here. Everyone, the political and the religious, are afraid they're losing their authority and they're looking for a way to destroy him, is what the Bible says. Remember, Jesus did all of this publicly and openly. He was not hiding. He knew this would happen. And yet he was willing to take the opposition because he knew he needed to stand for truth and show his authority in these ways. So going back to verses 27 and 28. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift for us, not an obligation. Here's how I would say it. The Sabbath, that remember the seventh day, keep it holy, you shall rest and not work. That law was a beneficial instruction not necessarily an obligational command. So people were, yes, they were asked to do it. They should, they should observe the Sabbath because they were told to, 
but the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying is that the reason that command is even there is because God gave it to us as a gift, that we would take time to not only rest, but it's even more about keeping a day holy to rest in Him, to look to God, to trust Him, to rest in His power. That's what He wanted for us, and that is for our good. It's not for us to have to add a bunch of regulations to like the Pharisees did and feel like if we don't do it exactly how we're supposed to or if, heaven forbid, we we pick a, a thing of grain or we heal somebody that somehow we're breaking a law, Jesus is saying, look, once again, the Sabbath is for man, not the other way around. You're making it more than it should be. You're making religion more than it should be and ceremony more than it should be. You've allowed it to replace a love for others and a love for God. And then the simple truth is this. Since the Sabbath is made for man and Jesus has authority over man as both God and man, Jesus then is in authority over the ceremonial Sabbath. And actually, in, in truth, if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that not only is Jesus Lord over the Sabbath, but Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. He is the one that we can rest in. He is the one that we can find hope in. He is the one that reminds us of who God is. He is the one who is God and who can rest in, who we can focus on. We can stop, we can rest from our labors of trying to please God through ceremony. We can rest from our labors of trying to do enough good to make God happy. We can rest from all those things because Jesus came to be our rest, that we can put ourselves in Him and ask Him to be our Savior, that we can come to Him and accept Him for what He's done, that He's lived a perfect life, He died on the cross, He rose again for our sins, that He loves us and wants to save us if we'll only come to Him and rest in Him instead of trying to think that we can somehow save ourselves and work towards our own authority. We need to understand His authority and rest in Him. So these oppositions that Jesus faced, it started with fellowshipping with the wrong people. And then it was eating the wrong things or feasting when he should have been fasting. And then it was this open disregard, this flouting of the Sabbath. Not not that he was saying God's law doesn't matter, but here's the simple truth. Jesus, when he came, fulfilled all the law. And therefore, we can come to Jesus and he has done everything that we could ever do and we put ourselves in him and he saves us not by obeying ceremonies remember he has brought a new way of living Jesus faced opposition based on his willingness to serve others no matter who they were and no matter what ceremonies would get in the way question is what about us if we desire to be the live the Christ like life we must follow him trust him and love others in spite of tradition and ceremony My fear is that many of us in churches have replaced Jesus with ceremony, with law, with, with rules. If I come to church enough, if I give enough money to the church, if I'm nice enough to people, then somehow I will please God and that's what he's looking for. And I need to do my very, very best to obey every rule I possibly can and be as good as I possibly can in order for God to accept me. And you might not say it, but I would dare say that there are people here that believe it. When you look deep down in your heart, you believe that somehow you need to be good enough for God. It's never going to happen. That's why you need to just put yourself in Christ and just beg Him 
for his mercy and his grace. Rest in him. Stop working. Stop trying to do everything in your own power. Stop trying to exert your own authority. Trust in Jesus. As I said, that starts with understanding the gospel. That starts with coming to Jesus, knowing that he died for your sin, that you've committed, that you've gone your own way, and that he died for you so that you don't have to spend forever away from him in hell, but instead you can have fellowship with him forever as he rose again and showed that he had power over sin and death. We need to start there. We need to know Jesus. We need to rest in him Nobody here is going to be able to reach God. Nobody here is going to be able to be good enough for God. He has already sent Jesus. Jesus has already come. He's brought a new way. And that new way is to be saved through Jesus and faith in Him. And rest in Him. Some questions to consider as we close. As we think about that quote I read, are we following Jesus' example in our fellowship? Or are we so caught up in our Christian bubble that we forget that there are people who need Jesus? Let's be Christ-like and let's reach out to those who need him most. It's not necessarily comfortable. It's not easy. Sometimes it's not even fun. But it is what we should be called to do as we follow the mission of Christ. Next question is, do we find joy in Christ? I could talk a long time for this. Christianity isn't about following rules. Christianity isn't even about just believing facts about Jesus Christianity isn't about living a certain way. Christianity is about finding Christ, knowing Christ, and enjoying Christ. Because this world doesn't understand what that means. They find joy in all the things, but we find joy in Christ. As Jesus said, when they wanted him to fast and mourn, he said, I'm here. Now I know Jesus isn't here physically, but we can still have joy in what Christ has done and who Christ is. So are we joyful in Christ or do we live our Christian life kind of a ho-hum, I'm so obligated to be a Christian? Or do we truly have joy? As we follow him, do we really find fulfillment and hope and joy and peace in him and him alone? And finally, are we living out of obligation and tradition or are we living out of rest in Christ? I've already talked about that, but are we living out of obligation and tradition or are we living out of rest in Christ? If you think that somehow your obligational ceremonies or traditions are going to save you, they're not. Jesus is the only one who saves. And even if you know Jesus already and you're already saved, we can easily slip back into the mindset of thinking, well, my traditions are what matters, and if I don't do what I've always done, or if this church doesn't do how it's always done, or whatever it might be, or I somehow, I, I'm gonna, it's, not, it's not going to work. Jesus is the goal. Rest in him. Tradition is just that. It's man-made. But Jesus calls you to follow him and rest in him. If we would please stand as we sing our final song.